When actor Martin Clune sailed to the rugged islands in the middle of the North Sea, he came across an impressively hardy group of people. They are really woolly, you know, really. It's harsh living out there, and you meet the people and they're tough. You wouldn't want to fight them. But a big fight might be brewing all over Scotland. Voters get to decide in a few weeks whether or not Scotland becomes independent from the rest of the UK. Their national identity is a big part of it. Well, I'm British, but it depends on who asks you. We always say Scottish first. <laughs> if you travel around Europe, if you say British, they think you're English. And nobody seems to like English peoples. And we'll learn how the issues women face can really vary all across the European Union. Since then, there are no housewives in Sweden. We don't need to get married. Visiting the smallest of the British Isles, debating Scottish independence, and how women's issues diverge across the EU. That's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. I find it intriguing to take a look at the politics of people who live outside the United States and hear what issues are at stake in their everyday lives. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. On today's show, we'll contrast what women who live in France, Scandinavia, and a Slavic country like Slovenia have to say about the important issues affecting them. We'll also learn why Scotland's gearing up for a vote on seceding from the rest of the United Kingdom and how Scottish citizens are weighing the pros and cons of becoming an independent country. Our number at Travel with Rick Steves is 877-333-7425. Send us your comments by email to radio at ricksteves.com. Let's start out today on the fringes of Britain with Martin Clunes. He's an actor and celebrity in Britain, and he stars in the Doc Martin drama series that's been airing on public TV stations all around the United States. A few years ago, Martin produced a travel documentary called Islands of Britain. It took him from the northernmost lighthouse on Muckle in the Shetland Islands to a lonely vista from a helipad on top of Bishop Rock off the tip of Cornwall. Martin, thanks for joining us from the comfort of a warm studio. Thanks for having me. So what is it about the small islands that made you want to go to all the trouble to actually show them in a documentary? I don't know. There's something just, to me, innately fascinating about an island. If you looked at two lakes and one had an island in it and the other didn't, you'd be interested in the one with the island, I think. Sure would. Um, and there's, there's something about island living as well that's extraordinary. And that I didn't know until I went, till I made You know, Doc series. Martin is set in Port Isaac, and that's a small, remote village in a remote part it of kind Britain. Of is. But you're taking yeah. it one step further. It's almost like you thought, hey, Port Isaac's cool, and then you can go <laughs> to the extreme. Let's go out to the islands of, what are they, silly, out there past they make Port Wynn look like uh, the, the center of civilization. Oh, yeah, they really do, yeah. <laughs> Tell us about the islands. Give us an overview. They were all different, obviously. They, they had their own characteristics, but there were things that came up again and again. There was, there was a sort of massively strong sense of community, all enveloping in tragedy and joy. You know, if there was anything to be celebrated, they'd all muster tragedy and joy, small, sparsely populated places. I mean, these are tiny, tiny populations where mm. they all probably wear many different hats as they keep their communities going. Oh, yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, and they've all got unique stories to tell, you know, but it is interesting, the, the commonalities. Well, let's let's go on a just a quick blitz around the British Islands. First of all, way off, we think of Land's End, you know, that's the southwest tip of England. A lot of tourists mm. go there, but Land's End is just a springboard to get out to some islands farther to the southwest. What are those? Those are the Isles of Scilly. I think there's about Scilly. four or five. And yeah, they're mythical, magical places if you get the weather right. And in August, I think it is, they have the um, the World Gig Rowing Championships. And gigs are, I think they're quite a Cornish thing, but maybe they have them all around the English coastal towns. They're six rowers, I think, in a heavy wooden boat. And we, we stumbled across, the first time I went to the Isles of Scilly, they had this world championship. And everywhere you looked, there was a team of these boats in the water. It was extraordinary. And the islands are small. And What are the boats called? Gig? Gigs? Gigs. G-I-G. I hadn't gig heard of racing. that. So they got yeah. gig racing on the island of Scilly. Port Isaac has a gig racing team. I'm the president or vice president or okay. something. Okay. Well, that's something to look for. How do you get out there? I mean, I remember you took a helicopter to one of these islands. Yeah, a lot of helicopters out there. Yes, you can get out there. There's a ferry. Uh, it takes quite a while to, to sail. I think mm -hmm. it goes from Newquay. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they've just stopped the helicopter running out there that you used to be able to hop over from Newquay. But I've been cut off there on a photo shoot once by the fog when mm -hmm. the helicopters can't get out. And we had to get 
think we had to collect our daughter from school, so we just had to charter a boat to drive us through oh the fog. My goodness. So that's the Isles of Scilly on the southwest tip. What about uh, halfway between England and France, near Normandy, uh, Isle of Sark? The Channel Islands. Yeah. Oh, they're lovely. They're worth a visit. Yeah, Guernsey, Jersey. And my favorite was Sark, which has no cars. No cars. No cars, no streetlights, lots of bicycles. Now, tiny population, what, about 600 people live on Sark, and they have their own parliament that goes to some quirky kind of government? Uh, yes, they have. Well, they just, um, they, that just changed, but it was the seigneur, had the droit de seigneur, where he was technically allowed the virginity of any new bride. <laughs> they just the changed that, huh? But, uh, yeah, he, he gave that up. <laughs> what a rare politician. <laughs> but that's a, that. the point is there, they've got a, sort of a cut-off heritage that can evolve on, on its own track. Yeah, and all, all these islands had kind of curious tales of occupation during the Second World War. Oh, yeah, they'd um, be strategic in the Second World War. Yes. Well, Queen Victoria was mad, built incredible defenses all over. She was convinced we were going to be attacked from there, and then she was uh, sort of proved right later on. But Yeah. Okay, so you got Sark kind of halfway between Normandy and England, and then way beyond Scotland, halfway between, really, between Scotland and Norway, you've got these islands that have a mix of Norse and Scottish culture. Yes. Talk about that. Yeah. Oh, they're just, um, they are really woolly, you know, really... It's harsh living out there, and you meet the people, and they're tough. You wouldn't want to fight them. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, yeah, there's a lot of Viking stock up So there. they embrace their, their Viking heritage? Yeah, very much. Yeah, and they keep it alive. I mean, I think a lot of it's guesswork, but there's a lot of, um, you know, old stones and stuff. You can see how the Vikings lived, and we know how the Vikings lived. Yeah. But they've got North Sea oil now, so they're, they're pretty blessed economically. <laughs> You've got rich Vikings. They've got some of the nicest tarmac you'll ever see. The roads are fantastic out there because of the oil industry. <laughs> the Shetland Islands, huh? Oh, the Shetlands are amazing. And yeah. the Hebrides, and yeah. The Hebrides is on the opposite side, uh, the west side of Scotland. And you, you visited an island famous for its whiskey. Oh, Isla, yeah. Isla, yeah, right. It's pronounced Isla, but it's spelled Isla, but it's, yes. Isla. Oh, yeah, that was great. Tell us about that, because those guys were so proud of their whiskey. They are so proud of their whiskey, as is the world, you know. I mean, it's, um, yeah. God knows how many millions of pounds go through that little island, but hmm. there's something in the water, they say, although all their whiskeys taste so different. They're all very unique. So they got their North Sea oil in the Shetland Islands, but in the Hebrides, it's the whiskey, the Scottish whiskey, and the traditional culture is pretty strong there. I didn't realize that there are actually communities where a lot of people speak the Scottish Gaelic. Oh, yeah, yeah. And well, and then there's, I think there's another language of the islands as well that may be lost now, but, uh, you know, because they, the Shetlands, they're, they're nearer Norway than Glasgow. Right. So they would have that, that mix of cultures. And then one island that's really quirky and really proud with its own sort of heritage, of course, is the Isle of Man between Ireland and England. Talk about the Isle of Man. Yes, that's a curious place. The Isle of Man, um, it took a big hit when cheap travel to France and Spain, ah. you know, the charter flights came. Yeah. Because every, a lot of people who like to go overseas would get the ferry over to the Isle of Man, which has lots of lovely beaches and had lots of sort of old sort of yeah. uh, piers along there. And, and then it took a real pounding. Suddenly nobody went. Um, and they reinvented themselves as a sort of Banking, I don't understand how these things mm -hmm. work, but a sort of banking center and m huge sums of money being filtered through there, not always with the best of intentions. Well, either. I guess you got to roll with the times. I, I get the sense in Blackpool also and in Brighton, those were very popular when there weren't cheap flights down to the Costa of del Sol in yeah. Spain. But now working class people can take their vacation and find some sunshine. I was always impressed how English people could go to Blackpool and sit on the beach in a drizzle and, and act like it's sunny. <laughs> That's fun for us. <laughs> it's it's a soft weather, you say, don't you? <laughs> but uh, the Isle of Man has a, a special kind of uh, quirkiness. The star of the Doc Martin television series has also produced a number of documentary travel specials in Britain, and they occasionally air here on public television in the United States. Martin Clunes is our guest today on Travel with Rick Steves as he tells us about his adventures into the far-flung, rugged, and intriguing specks on the map that surround Britain. He filmed these for a breezy three-part travelogue series called Islands of Britain. Martin, when we think about all these islands that surround Britain, what do they have in common? What did you sort of take away from the documentary you made? By the way, you can watch the documentary if you just go to YouTube and, and search it. But uh, what do you take away from the, the people here and the communities? And maybe what can we learn from them? 
their island because I grew up in a sort of bland suburb, not bland, really nice leafy suburb of uh, London called Wimbledon where the tennis happens. But it doesn't really, you know, oh, those guys from Wimbledon, they're so, you know, there's nothing to us really. But the identity of of the communities on those islands, that's that's what they all have. They all stand tall and they stand together through thick or thin. Because they could all, they have the wherewithal to leave. They could go to London and try to yep. find a job there. But Yeah, it's not always easy for them at all. Yeah, they put up with inefficiencies and hardship in order to eke out an existence on these rocks out in the sea and uh, yeah. their communities. What do you think the reward is for them? I think that's a reward in itself. I think belonging to that uh, mm-hmm. that, that community, because they know that it's a strength they have over other communities. You know, they know that they're, it's it's sort of mighty with them, I think. And there's probably sort of a, a loneliness and lack of community in a big city, fast, material world that they might embrace and appreciate in their small town mm. island worlds. Yeah, I bet. All right. Chris is on the line in uh, Valencia, California. Chris, thanks for your call. Hello. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Martin. Yeah. Hi, um, I'm a bit of an Anglophile, and I enjoyed your Islands of Britain series, Martin. Um, oh. And often um, when planning vacations, we tend to look to destinations abroad, and something he mentioned in this in the series was you know, we have these hidden gems closer to home, and often we tend to plan to, you know, take our vacation somewhere else. And just curious, of uh, the places that he's yet to travel to, is there one beyond Britain and one within Britain that someday he'd like to visit? Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, there's. I'd like to do a lot more Scotland. I'd like to see a lot more of Scotland. I don't really know the eastern side of Scotland. I know the west, and I know the western islands, and I know a lot of the islands now. But, you know, I've got a couple of Scottish horses and I find myself spending more and more time in Scotland and uh, we love it for holidays and trips. And it's an amazing place to drive through. You know, it's really empty and wild. Um, that that would do me. And wow, the rest of the world, I'm fascinated to go to Japan and I'm hatching a plan to get myself there. I used to say my number one destination that I hadn't been to was Madagascar. And then a couple of years ago, I went and I made a program about the uh, lemurs there, and I got to go there. And hmm. It's still one of the, my favorite places I've ever been, and I'd recommend anybody to go there while it's still there. I'm waiting for Doc Martin Does Japan. I think that sounds fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, thanks for your call. Great. Thank you, Rick, and thank you, Martin. I appreciate it. Nice to speak to you, Chris. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, Martin, thank you so much from all of your fans in the United States for the work you've done with Doc Martin. And uh, thank you also for taking us on a little tour of the many (sighs) islands that are a part of the British Islands. Well, thank you. Thanks very much. It's been nice talking to you. Many of the most evocative islands off the coast of Britain are in Scotland. And there's some big news brewing in Scotland. There's talk that the currency and passports their residents use might have to change after an important vote next month. That's when voters in Scotland decide if they should become an independent nation or stay with the UK. We'll look into the big political question in Scotland next. And a little later in the hour, we'll learn about issues affecting women in different parts of the European Union. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Many in Scotland are calling next month's referendum vote the most important decision they'll make in their lifetime. On September 18th, voters aged 16 and older will answer the question, should Scotland be an independent country? Media rhetoric in the UK is heating up to a rolling boil right now, and the controversies and issues behind the referendum are being spread out for the rest of the world to see. 
So I've asked three of my favorite tour guides from Scotland to shed a little light on what this vote means to them. Anne Doig lives in Edinburgh. Colin Mares lives in Glasgow. And Liz Lister comes to us from a small town in a region still known as the Kingdom of Fife. And note that while polling trends may sway a bit since the date we recorded our conversation, the entire United Kingdom is paying close attention day by day as voters in Scotland determine the future of their union. Liz, Anne, and Cullen, thanks so much for being here. Thank Thank you. Now, Cullen, when you talk about secession, Mm. what what is the basic issue in a nutshell? Mm -hmm. Well, the current situation is that Scotland is part of the United Kingdom. Uh, When we say United Kingdom, that's, uh, well, Scotland, England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. So uh, the issue is Scotland wants to break away from the rest of the United Kingdom and be its own independent nation. And... Liz, when London looks at that, what what are the why would London even care? Well, I think that uh, at the moment, many in Scotland would say that London is not particularly caring. I think that at the moment, the polls are showing that there's um, a very heavy majority for those that wish to belong together, to remain part of the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a complacency in London that this won't happen. And suddenly, as the polls are beginning to swing, suddenly London is beginning to sit up and take notice. And I think London is going to have to start, by London I mean Westminster and the government, are going to have to start producing a strong case of why Scotland is better together as part of the United Kingdom. So do I understand that London or or Westminster really didn't think it was a serious threat and all of a sudden it looks like it actually might happen? And in Scotland, most people figure they could do it if they wanted to, but it's serious business and they might want to not have their wish come true because then they got to deal with the reality of being an independent country in a rough and tumble world and it might be more comfortable to be a part of the United Kingdom. And what, what is the situation with that? Well, that's, that's absolutely right. Apparently, according to the polls, it's people of my age and women that are change averse and they're, we don't really have enough information about the, the actual implications. And so some people are a bit nervous about that because mm-hmm. change is kind of scary and at the moment, it's on the radio and the TV all the time. You Better Together campaign and the Scottish National campaign. And you get statistics from both of them. Yeah. And your eyes glaze over after yeah. about 10 minutes. The, prob- the problem really <laughs> is that you've got one side telling you everything's going to be great for independent. One yeah. side telling you everything's going to be really bad. And you don't, it's, each and person has to make their own and decisions. I can, I can imagine and you don't young know what people, it's going to be like. I can imagine no young can people waving the, young the flag people. and going independence. And I can imagine older people going... Wait, Wait a, a minute. minute, who's going to pay for our uh, this well, exactly. and who's going to pay for that? It's easily split young and old. There's, there's all kinds of... Yeah. Talking to ordinary people in the street, there is a real interest in it, mm-hmm. that it's not going to be an emotional decision, here's to us, mm-hmm. who's like us. It's going to be a rational decision and people want information. So that's not just the intelligentsia, that's the ordinary common man and mm-hmm. woman that they want to make. They realise that this is a once-in-a-generation decision and they want to make an informed decision. Mm-hmm. And this is an opportunity. I mean, London is going to go with the will of the Scottish people. London won't come in and stop this. London may sort of buy some advertising and and, and raise its voice, but basically it's a Scottish decision within the Scottish community. The the agreement has been signed between the Scottish government and the the British government in London that this will decide and both sides will agree. Anna, do you see yourself as Scottish or British? Well, I'm British, but it depends on who asks you. Uh, (laughs) I, I live in Britain, but... I'm, we always say Scottish first because yeah. uh, if you travel around Europe, if you say British, they think you're English. And nobody seems to like English people, so you're much better. They say, oh, Scott says he, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you can be, you've got that luxury of being able to pick and both, choose. Yes. If, if Britain wins a gold medal in the Olympics, yeah, Britain. And yeah. if somebody screws up, no, we're Scottish. Yeah, I like to say that, well, I'm, I'm British by passport, but I'm Scottish by the grace of God. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Now, within Scotland, do you identify with a, a region or a clan, or is, is everybody kind of Scottish? I think the days of the clans have largely passed. There are mm-hmm. still people who have strong affinity who meet at clan gatherings or whatever, but for the ordinary person, the clan system really doesn't have much um, impact nowadays. It's mm-hmm. uh, much more about... Um, Political, economic, and Scotland yes. is Scotland viable. Now, Scotland does have the advantage of North Sea oil. oil which makes you much more bold when it comes to stepping out for independence. Does that embolden Scottish but independent uh, movement? It does, yeah. yeah. Um, a real serious movement for Scottish independence began in the 1970s with the discovery of North Sea Oil. Uh, so currently the situation is that the money from North Sea Oil goes directly to London and is then redistributed 
throughout the UK. And Scottish people could be a little upset with that because yeah. you're subsidizing you know, people down in the South yeah. who are just kind of hanging yeah. out. But then the English would call us the whinging Scots. <laughs> and that's part of the problem because we have what's called the Barnet formula by which um, the Westminster government devolves a budget to Scotland. And I think the majority of Scots people, if it had been an option, would have gone for the third line, which would have been Devo Max, which would have been further devolution of powers to include fiscal powers. The English would call you the winching Scots? Winching Scots. What does that mean? Whining. We're always gurning and gurning. moaning and uh, saying, it's no fair, it wasn't fair. <laughs> That's what that is, the word winching Scots. Okay, now there's a special, unique kind of twist to the law in favour of Scotland? or what, No, what there's it? a formula whereby Scotland has allocated its budget called the Barnet Formula and nobody understands it. So the south of England, and we have to remember that England is many regions, many of them right. as large as Scotland. So when we talk about England, we tend to talk about the south of England. Okay. You know, there are regional problems, whether it be Cornwall, whether it be Yorkshire, they have the same issues as Scotland. So the British budget, out of that budget, a certain allocation will go to different regions. And from the, from the accountant's point of view at Westminster, Scotland is a region that gives yes. us so, so much money. Mm -hmm. But I understand with this formula, Scotland actually has... Even more a little money. more power than other regions, or, or what is that? Well, the, uh, Barnet was a civil servant, and per head of population, Scotland gets 5,000 more per person in London. So we get the highest amount from the national pot. And people in London, if they know about it, feel resentful because London produces so much for the British economy. But the argument, it started way back in the 70s, the Barnet formula, and it was to stop. The, the movement towards independence. If Scotland got more money, it was compensating for the North Sea oil. So Scotland is getting roughly $10,000 per person more, more from the British Empire every year British government. to keep the Scottish people enthusiastic about being part of the UK and to, was the idea. to compensate them for the fact that they've got North, North, North sea, sea Oil. oil. Yeah. It's like uh, Alaskans get a little bit of an extra bonus each because they've got so much oil under mm. their houses and mm. it pumps the economy. But I would put the question back to you. How would you feel if in the United States of America you had your, your state governments, right, and you had your federal government, but Alaska's state government was your federal government because it's got the power in Alaska. So instead of all states being equal... You know, Westminster mm. is both the English Parliament and the UK Parliament. So what I think Scots want, above all else, is respect. And are they going to get it? <laughs> this is where I think as the, as the polls begin to move more and more and more to the danger of a yes vote, respect might begin to come onto the agenda. Yeah. Now, the danger of a yes vote. That's, That's interesting, interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Colin, do, what, what is the danger of a yes vote for Scottish independence? The danger for Scotland? Yeah. Well, the danger is we don't know what, it's what like comes next. <laughs> exactly, yeah. There's a lot of issues that will need to be resolved, like do we continue to use the, the pound sterling? Currently we use the same currency, of course, yeah. as England and Wales and Northern Ireland. Yeah. We are supposed we, to be. We, yeah, they say we will Defense. at the start. Will it change? Having, having Defense is a big issue. That's a big issue, yeah. You might have a little, what we'd say, egg on your face coming back to Westminster, knocking on the door, say, anyway, we could be part of a, something, let's call it the United Kingdom or something yeah. like that. Yeah, but an important point to mention also is that the people who do want independence for Scotland, they want to just leave the United Kingdom but still stay part of Europe we still want to be in the EU and that's another issue which is as it's a new country we would have to reapply to the EU to the EU yeah but I think the one thing about the establishment of the European Union is that more regions like Scotland get a little more emboldened to have autonomy mm. because you know you can break away from Britain but you can't break away from Europe you're part of mm. Europe and, and that mm. seems to be yeah. something that yeah. is, is hard to deny yeah so it's small nations within a united Europe yeah Scottish residents Liz Lister, Cullen Mares, and Anne Doig are sharing their perspectives with us on Travel with Rick Steves. They're updating us about a referendum on independence from the rest of Britain. They'll be voting on that on September 18th. You can share your thoughts in our online forum on this or any other topic you hear on the program. There's a link to the forum in the radio department of ricksteves.com. Of course, in Scotland, there's a big discussion about independence, but Scotland has its own parliament. I mean, I understand... Uh, from 1707 on, the Scottish Parliament was dissolved and it was all the governing was taking place at Westminster. But just um, a decade or two ago, Scotland uh, won a, a referendum, established your own parliament. You got a beautiful parliament building in Edinburgh and uh, tourists can visit it. And uh, what's your complaint? You got a parliament. Absolutely. And we're, that has really brought a sense of unity to Scotland in having our parliament. But at the moment, the powers of that parliament are limited, where it's things that relate to Scotland only. 
um, like education, rural affairs. Um, those are, are governed by our Scottish Parliament. But immigration and uh, taxation in particular are retained by Westminster. And it's mainly the fiscal powers which are the, the area of greatest debate as we move uh, forward to the referendum. I would like to jump in there yeah. because I think one of the main issues amongst the Scots was uh, the military. We don't have any power in Scotland over going to war. Mm-hmm. It's the, the British armed forces. And it was a very unpopular war, Iraq. And there's a lot of Scottish soldiers. And it was taken, the decision was taken in London. Huge, huge outrage in Scotland about that. Oh, and also, that. we have uh, the nuclear deterrent for the UK just outside Glasgow, the nuclear subs, and it makes us a target and it costs a fortune. We're just upgrading it and it's costing billions and uh, an independent Scotland would not have nuclear deterrence. They'd rather spend the money on hospitals, roads, etc. And I think that's an important point, is defence. There would be, according to the the yes, there would be a, a small defence in Scotland, you know, armed forces, but nothing like on the scale of the UK, because the UK still sees itself as a world power, and Scotland says, no, we're not. We just want to be... Let's have schools and hospitals. And that's where I tend to want to vote yes. That is a fundamental issue. And I I know that Britain can jump into a military adventures for whatever relationship with the United States and so on, but historically the Scots have died in greater proportion for British wars than the rest of the British people. Since the Battle of Culloden... When the British government crushed the uprising. So the there is Scotland. this militaristic the, spirit in Scotland yeah. and, and the yeah. Brits have yeah. taken they, this and, yeah. and used it for they their... Adopt, they adopted the Scots into the British means. army. It was said, used, that used the the Scot- it said that the Scots took the king's shilling. It was the only way that many of, for many of them, that they, they could survive. It was the only um, way of Darning earning a living. Forces. So that's what's called enlisting just to, for economic survival, take mm-hmm. the king's, king's shilling. shilling. And also the right to wear the kilt because the kilt was outlawed. So, you know, so now the Scots are tired of taking the king's shilling. <laughs> Some of them, and that's one so, reason. Well, it's, and, it's all different now. It's and like, I, yeah, it's all different. And this whole nuclear, nuclear thing yeah. is that takes a whole different dimension to yes. it. And to be a target, yeah, and not even to be in control, yeah. So you're going to take the hit again in a much grander way, yeah. potentially, than sending more soldiers to Afghanistan than you should, or yeah. something. Trident—that's the name of it. There's mm. there's different issues and different reasons why people will vote yes or no. But recently, I had a, a friend who had, had a phone call. Uh, it was from the Labour Party, so that's the one of the political parties in the United Kingdom. And they were asking, just in a survey, just asking how you're going to vote in the referendum. Yeah. Uh, so my friend, he said, well, I'm, I'm going to vote yes, I'm going to vote in favour. And he said, and can we just ask, what's the reason for that? We're going to give three options. Is that because of Alex Salmond? He's the, he's the head of the Scottish government just now. He's the leader of the, the party that won independence. Right. They said, or is that because of Scottish oil? Or is that because of Scottish identity? So he said, well, for me, it's identity. It's about that's what your friend said? Yeah. yeah. He said, okay, uh, well, let's close this interview with a little, uh, a little survey right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking with Anne Doig, Liz Lister, and Cullen Mares, three Scottish guides from three different cities, Fife, Edinburgh, and Glasgow. The big election is coming up September 18, 2014. At this point, I'll ask each of you what you're going to vote for and what you think Scotland will vote for. Simple as that. Andoik. Well, I'm Switzerland at the moment. <laughs> I keep changing my mind. Um, at the moment, the polls are with the no vote, the better together. But that could easily change. And Alex Salmon's very clever. He's This referendum is on the anniversary of the Battle of Bannockburn, which was a great victory. Oh, it's, and he's lo- Scott, it's like well, it's it's having year. a vote in Texas on the anniversary of the Alamo. Exactly. And also, he's reduced the voting age from 18 to 16. And it's the young kids that get all emotional and I have to say, I've got a knee-jerk reaction against nationalism because the Nazis were sentimental and national. And I want to have a really sort of less, that identity thing, uh-huh. I would totally disagree. For me, if I vote yes, it's because of we're a target, because of nuclear, because of defence, going to foreign wars okay. that we're against. Well, so, and very thoughtful. And you're still on the fence. There's a lot of discussion between yes, I need Yes, I need more information. Uh-huh. Colin. Just to pick up immediately on the fact that, and comparing it to the Nazis, that the Scottish National Party is not right wing. It's not. Um, well, they're not Nazis. Yeah, they're not Nazis. They're not Nazis <laughs> it was a at sentiment. all. Sentiment. <laughs> okay. yeah, but mean, the nationalism but that is uh, used, yeah. you can take advantage yeah. of nationalism. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, yeah. an, it's yeah. not an exclusive nationalism. Right. It's an inclusive nationalism. We have lots of immigrants come to Scotland, and we're. I get a sense you're going to be Scots voting yes. As well. <laughs> 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 How did you guess? Okay, uh, I'm going to vote yes. And what do you think is going to happen? I think it might not happen. Right. Yeah. And finally, you're the tie-breaking vote, Liz. Well, the first thing is that when we vote for independence, we're not 
actually voting for the Scottish Nationalist Party because there will then be an election. So that's the first thing. So right from the outset, I have wanted to make an informed decision. So I've been with Anne, I'm Switzerland in the middle. (laughs) But while we've had a white paper from the yes side, we've had nothing but negativity from the no side, better together side. And the more that I'm told as a Scot that I can't do it, that I won't be part of Europe, that I won't be able to survive, that we'll lose North Sea oil, the more I'm swinging towards a yes vote. So that's just the belligerent Scot in me. (laughs) (laughs) That's a beautiful political sentiment because we have the same thing in our country where where some people are just no, 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 no in order to get people on their side. And what you're saying is, I'm not going to respond to that. I need a little bit of uh, yes, yes, yes in some way. Mm. And I, I get a sense that the vote is, it's a little unfortunate because there's only two choices and there's probably different alternatives that could have been considered mm-hmm. and up for a vote. But now your country is left with black or white. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's and a huge we'll... opportunity to look at the UK constitution and to give the respect to yeah. each of the four mm. constituent nations. Well, I hope it works out well and I'll be traveling there in the future to just uh, check it out. Anne, Liz, and Cullen, thank you so much for an insight into some excitement that's going on in, in Scotland. Best Pleasure. wishes. Thank you. Thank you. No sweetness the senses can Which corruption and bribery lie No brightness but bloom can ne'er clear For honors the sum of the mind Let the love of our land sacred rise That song from Scottish singer Jim Malcolm is called Both Sides of the Tweed. It was written in 1979 to describe an important event in Scottish history when the Treaty of Union between England and Scotland was enacted back in 1707. The lyric wishes well to residents on both sides of the river that divide Scotland from England. You can hear more from Jim Malcolm and get touring suggestions in Scotland from our guests. You'll find them in the Travel with Rick Steves program archives. Look for program number 363 from this past May. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Next, we'll learn from friends who live in distinctly different parts of Europe about how women's issues and challenges depend as much on the local culture as they do on the laws of the European Union. We're at 877-333-RICK. Hello, my name is Fabian, and I would like to read to you a German nursery rhyme that's been around since around 1900, and it's meant to teach children contradictions. Pretty much every line in this poem contradicts itself, and that is kind of the fun of it. In, in German, it sounds like this. Dunkel war's, der Mond schien helle, Schnee bedeckt die grüne Flur, Als ein Wagen blitzes schnelle, Langsam um die Ecke fuhr. In English, that means Dark it was, the moon shone bright, on snow-covered fields of green, when a coach came fast as light, slowly round the corner's beam. Dunkel war's, der Mond schien helle, Schnee bedeckt die grüne Flur, als ein Wagen blitzes schnelle, langsam um die Ecke fuhr. One of the things I enjoy most about traveling to different countries is learning about the different ways people tackle the same problems and challenges we all face in a rapidly changing world. And for women... 
how are issues of equal pay, corporate glass ceilings, and juggling family and career different in Europe from what you might expect here in North America? Joining us to explore these issues right now are Tina Hiti. She and her husband are raising their family in the scenic Lake Bled area of Slovenia. Ilva da Silva lives in eco-friendly Stockholm in the famously egalitarian country of Sweden, and Kansas-born Julie Sanvo married a Frenchman, moved to rural France, and is now raising her children there. Let's start with contrasting your lives today with how it differs from what your mothers faced at the same age. Ilva, what's the state of women today compared to an earlier generation in Sweden? Well, none at all, actually. Uh, my mother's generation, but from my grandmother's generation, to me, it's enormous. But my mother's life was pretty much like mine. She went went to school, she studied, she Okay, so the big changes in Sweden happened two generations yes, ago. exactly. Tina, yeah, in there, Slovenia. With us, there's a lot more equality right now than it was before. With my mom, she was pretty much, she needed to work, but then also raise the kids, do everything at home. While the fathers, the men, didn't work that much as they do now. Now it's a lot more equal between the two genders. Now, for your mother, she grew mm-hmm. up during the Warsaw Pact times. Um, and Yugoslavia yeah, was yeah. Uh, not Yugoslavia was a little different, but yeah. generally Eastern Europe was in the Soviet realm. Yeah, gen- Does that have something to do with what you're saying? There's a more affluence today and more freedom. Yeah. Does that relate to women? Yeah, it relates to women now. But I also think there is one thing that it's a minus now. It's that in the old system that we had, it was a lot more security because they were not afraid to lose the jobs. They were not looking for jobs. They were not afraid of paying for schools for kids. Right now, we deal with a lot of these issues, and that's a different thing. There's more freedom for women, but there's also more freedom to be in in some serious straits. And Julie, basically, you grew up in America, but how long have you been in France now? Ten years. Ten years. Ten years. And what's your take on the situation for women in France? It was quite different for me to go from the uh, United States to France about uh, the women's roles and their kind of place in society. It's very subtle, and I'm still working on figuring all that out. My mother-in-law, when um, she was working, uh, I live in the countryside in France, and she's in agriculture. And I know that when she was working with her husband uh, on the farm, she had no rights financially as far as putting in for her retirement, uh, things like that. And I was uh, a boulanger, which is the wife of the baker, and uh, that's the same way for them. They're considered artisans, and they can't uh, contribute financially for their future as a woman but now that's changed. That's changed since I've been there. But so. that's a fundamental, a big, almost like a legal change. In right, the state right, of women. right. Now, today in Europe, in your various countries, I just read in the United States, uh, they figure a woman makes 75% what a man makes for the same job. Uh, for what a man will be paid, you know, $100 for, a woman would be paid $75. What would you guess the situation is now in France, Slovenia, and Sweden? Uh, Julie and I France? would guess that it's about the same. About the same? Yes, it's the same in Slovenia as well. No, really? in Sweden, you have the same pay. Are you just more patriotic, or is it really that good? No, it is that good, <laughs> yeah. but... So there's no question in, in Scandinavia... Same, yes, for the same right. kind of work, but then there are some, well, hospitals, nurses are mm-hmm. mainly women, and they Okay, are so not there's well occupations paid. that are traditionally exactly. men or women. Mm-hmm. In yeah. um, company boards, there are more... Men, men and women still it's it's getting better so what are the challenges in scandinavia because scandinavia just seems so progressive and so together but there are challenges gender challenges for instance for women what would you say the main crusade how could you hope the world would be better for your daughters or something like this in well it, it is this with the these company boards and mm-hmm. also most of the ceos for big companies are men right but there are a lot of smaller companies with female okay. with women and in the politics, it's... Um, and now I will brag again. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so in our Swedish government, we have 24 ministers, 13 are women. So, more than half, a yeah. little bit more than half. In the parliament, we have 50% women, but in the city council of Stockholm, we have uh, 53% women. So basically, there is gender equality in politics in Sweden. Yes, And definitely. Tina, in Slovenia? Well, nothing like that, but we do have a prime minister and she's a woman, and that's almost the only representative of that sex in the is that government. Right? So, yeah. so, so the big boss is a woman and yeah. everybody else is men in Slovenia. Yeah. And that's a new thing because it hasn't been for years. We ne- we never had a woman in so parliament. Are maybe. you hopeful that in the future that'll be a little more like Sweden? Or Yeah, uh, I hope that it will get more equal in that field, in the political sense, and also in corporate world, because as in Sweden, also we have more corporate 
people that are men. men. So it's a man's are, world in, the, yeah, in corporations yeah, and yeah. in politics yeah. still. And Julie, in France, uh, politically, what's the story? I think there's a lot of women in politics, more in politics and in the corporate world. Mm-hmm. I think it's more acceptable for a woman to be in that position. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the challenges of women in different countries. And every week for an hour, we explore different cultures and try to learn from from our travels and learn from other people who can share a little insight so we can better organize our own culture in a lot of ways. And uh, a lot of us are struggling uh, as parents and raising our kids and our daughters to live fulfilling lives. And all of you are mothers. What are the challenges in your society of balancing the obligations and beauties of being a good mother and also maintaining your careers? Is this a challenge in France, Julie? What, what are the, what are you confronting that way? Well, I feel that sometimes I've had an easier time being a mother in France because financially you get help um, being a mother so that you feel you can be in the home if you want to be there with your children to help raise them. So Financially you get help, how so? Um, from the government you get uh, subsidies per child for well, help. Just to or... help pay your domestic mm-hmm, bills. Right. You also have uh, government subsidized daycare, don't you, if you want to go to work? Right, and the maternity leave and all kinds of things, and and help if you don't make a certain wage, then you can subsidize that with help as well from the government. Let's just quickly review this, because Mm -hmm. this is a big issue for women. Women want to have a career track. Men cannot have kids. Women Mm -hmm. have the kids, and it's generally the case that women end up having to stay home and raise them. In Europe, you have government-mandated paid maternal Mm -hmm. or parental leave. Just very quickly, in your different countries, what is the paid time you get off of work to be home when you have a baby, your maternal or paternal leave. Julie in France? Maternal leave is, for the first child, uh, 16 weeks paid mm-hmm. and for the mother, and then she can take up to one year per child at 70 to 80 percent of her wage and be guaranteed her job back after that time. And if the couple decides the woman's job is a little harder to leave than the man's or for whatever reason, can the dad stay home? Well, the dad gets 11 days, so it's so more it's really the mother's... D- so legally, yes. the mom gets the break to stay home. Right. And Tina, in Slovenia? Yeah, in Slovenia, we do have 365 days of maternity leave, so a good year. And um, it's all fully paid. For the mom? For the, the mom. For, for the, the mom. mom. Also, the men can do it, but it's, I would say, 95%. It's always the so women traditionally the who women stay at home. home and There's almost a stigma if a man would stay at home. It's like, yeah. it's kind of weird. But that's so, a little different in yeah. Scandinavia yes. because I see a lot mm-hmm. of men with baby strollers out in the mm-hmm. parks on a Wednesday morning, you know? It would be a stigma for a mm. father not to stay at home with yeah. his child. Not to stay at home. Yes. Completely different. Completely different. In Sweden. Yes. In Sweden, we have 480 days with. 80% of the income. Mm-hmm. So it's not fully paid, but 80%. 80% yes. It's pretty good. And it's divided by the mom yes, and the dad. So as usually the mother stays at home as long as she's breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. So six months. And then the father stays at home for six months. And then we divide the rest of the days. A lot of moms are concerned that their daughters will try to live up to this Barbie image that you get if you uh, if young girls watch TV here. Is that a concern in Europe, uh, Julie? Yes, and actually um, they just changed the law where um, now little girls are not able to do beauty pageants until they're 16 because um, they said it was exploiting... In France? Yes. No beauty yeah. pageants for girls until they're 16 right, years old. Right, because they were exploiting the way they were getting dressed up more and more looking like an older girl, so... This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about challenges women face in Europe. And our phone number is 877-333-7425. Catherine's on the line from Toronto in Ontario. Catherine, thanks for your call. Hi. um, I just had a couple of quick questions because um, I often travel on my own and uh, as a Canadian abroad. I've always been curious if there are behaviors that North American women should be avoiding when they're traveling on their own in Europe. Because I know um, you were just mentioning uh, how some of us are portrayed in the media um, and I, I know that some of us behave a little um, perhaps more scandalous or are a little bit louder, more boisterous. I'm curious if there are um, sort of certain norms that we should be trying to adhere to when we're traveling in certain parts of Europe. That's good advice. From a woman's point of view, when you see American women traveling in Europe, are they ever needing a little bit of coaching, doing anything that reflects poorly on them? Or what advice would you give American tourist women, Tina? Yeah, with the younger women, I would say yeah, they are usually a lot louder than the European women are. Um, they're all over the place. So I would say a little calm down, take it a little more seriously. But other than that, I think it's still the curiosity and the friendliness that gets you a long way. Ilva, any advice from Sweden? No, no. You can 
behave yes. as you. You can do whatever you want in Sweden. No, <laughs> yeah, no, in whole Scandinavia. So. And, and Julie, France is a complicated culture it's for a lot of It's very complicated, travelers. but there's a couple of things I, that I would say, and that is, um, number one, that... Uh, the French people are a little bit more discreet, and so they're not quite that friendly really quick. We're very trusting. Americans are very trusting of people, and uh, we want to get into conversation, or, or people will walk up to us, and you, you kind of got to be careful sometimes when you're out, especially if you're if you're alone. Oh, that's good advice. And the other thing is, in, in France, it, you've got to be really careful when you're, if you're a woman traveling alone, if you go into, say, for instance, in the United States, we can go, go into a restaurant and sit up at the bar and eat and talk to the bartender. That kind of thing is just not done in France. Not done meaning if you do it, you're sort of um, asking for rude advances? Right. You're, well, they might think that you want something more, oh, okay. right? so, other I than just to be friendly. In a lot of countries, a woman alone in a restaurant or in a bar or walking out on the street at night will be approached and people think she's a prostitute or, or looking for I wouldn't something. say walking in the street. I've always no. felt really safe mm-hmm. and, and being alone as a woman walking around in Paris or in okay. anywhere in France. But it's just the You don't want to give a mixed message. You don't want to walk up to somebody and start talking to them like you would here. Right. That's good advice because Americans often find that's a nice characteristic, but it might cause them a little trouble. Yeah. Catherine, I hope that gives you some ideas there. Perfect. That's great. Thank you so much. Thanks for your call. All right. Thanks. We're discussing the variety of issues and concerns you might find in different corners of Europe right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guests are Elva de Silva from Stockholm in Sweden, Tina Hiti, who lives near Lake Bled in Slovenia, and American Julie Sanvo, who married a Frenchman and is raising her kids in France. And Kim's calling in from Farmington in Utah. I have a question of your guests, and I'm interested in having them provide a present day kind of a compare and a contrast of the general situation of women in the European Union as compared to women in North America and the United States, such as the education level and other, I I guess, just demographic information about how... So just how well off are women from a general equality point of view? Yes. So like in occupations, in freedom, in roles, in opportunities in education... Yes, and I guess particularly in education. I, I guess I, I feel like more and more education for women is valued in the United States and, and more progressive for women all the time. And I don't really, I don't hear much about how that is received in the European Union. So, Kim, thank you. That's a good sort of uh, way to begin to wrap up our discussion. If you're thinking just in general, the state of women, if you're a mom in your countries, uh, what concerns would you have for your daughters in the next generation? What challenges do you have? Or is everything just great for women? Here in America, gender roles are a big deal. Equal pay for equal work is a big deal. Julie, as an American mom living in France, what are your concerns for your your daughters in the next generation? Well, there's concerns and then there's positives. I think that um, French women are very graceful about accepting their role in society. And I think that it's nice to see my daughter fit into that as well. But as far as education goes, I think that uh, education is, is a high priority in France for everybody, women as, as well as men. Now, you said French women are very graceful about fitting into their roles. And I think that's a very interesting light to shine on this discussion. A lot of people would be adamant about there are no roles. Everybody's equal. But I have the sense in France and in some cultures in Europe women celebrate the fact that they are treated like women and they don't really aspire to be like men. Exactly. Talk a little more about that. I believe that. that, uh, Just the way they present themselves, the way they hold themselves, they're proud to be women and they're they're graceful. And it's not, I'm sure as far as financially, yes, they do want to be paid equal Mm -hmm. amounts for the equal job, but they're not as aggressive Mm -hmm. as we are in the States sometimes about being equal in everything. Ilva, in Sweden, is that interesting to you? Or is there a, a sort of a specialness of women in Sweden? Or is it we're all equal? No, a Swedish woman would be very aggressive, I would say. If she, if my daughters heard you, they would be upset. Mm. So you don't want, in no. Sweden, you don't want a man to open the door for you? No, I no. can open the door myself. Yes, definitely. Right. And, uh, and education, salaries, everything has to be the same. And, uh, and in your assessment, it is? Yes, but... There but. are these, uh, <laughs> like, nurses, uh, preschool teachers. Okay, they so are a little women. work yes. to do in Sweden to get the high-powered occupations but, equally but populated by men and women. But the will is there, and 
and Tina in Slovenia? I would say we're somewhere in between France and Scandinavia. We're not as women that gracious as the French women are. But I think still in Slovenia, yeah, you like to be a woman. You want the door. Would, I can open the door yeah, for you. And, 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 yeah, you, you can open the door for me, but I would like to have the same paycheck as well. As, <laughs> and that's that's one of the things that we talk about. We do have also a few celebrations for women in our country. So we actually celebrate not just the Mother's Day, but we also celebrate the day for all women. And it's a cool celebration, and it goes back to the, I would say, socialist system. The day for all women. That yeah. gives women a little yeah. more um, power or, or, mm -hmm. or, or dignity in general, rather than just, you are worth celebrating because you're a mom, yeah. you're worth celebrating because, because you're, you're a, woman. a woman. Yeah, that's right. Kim, does that make sense to you? Absolutely, it does. I appreciate the responses. It's interesting, isn't it, how you've got this sort of spectrum, and uh, women aspire to different things in France, Slovenia, and Sweden, and uh, everybody's uh, on a track to get there. And it sounds like Sweden's doing pretty darn well, and everybody's making progress. Thanks for your call, Kim. Thank you. To wrap things up, I would just like to know if your great-grandmother was here, and she could go into your home, and she could see the role of women today in your society, what would she be most struck by? Ilva in Sweden. Uh, probably that I'm not married. I have children, but I'm not married. My mother... I have two siblings. My mother never got married. My grandmother, though, she was born 1920. She married, and she was a housewife. But since then, there are no housewives in Sweden, and uh, we don't need to get married. That's a big change mm -hmm. for great-grandma. Julie, in France. Um, that would be one of them, that uh, I'm a single mother raising two kids, but that I don't have a traditional job, uh, even though I do have a job. It's... Uh, very unconventional to be working out of the country and traveling away from my children at times. And In an affluent modern age, men and women have more options and, right. and more creative, fun mm. things to do rather than just get out in the field and, and try to make enough uh, food to exactly. feed the family. Mm. And Tina in Slovenia, great-grandma comes into your house in Ljubljana. Oh, she would be in a big shock because she would see my husband cooking. That would never happen. <laughs> You have a modern husband, and you are a modern mom in former Yugoslavia. Yeah. All right. Tina, Ilva, Julie, thank you very much. This has been a very thought-provoking discussion, and best wishes for each of you as you fly home. Thank you. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Our website team includes Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. When you're traveling, you can find out when other stations air Travel with Rick Steves. Look for our affiliate listings with Listen Live links in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And we'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to England, Scotland, Ireland, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next adventure in Great Britain or Ireland, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.